it is incumbent on us as we regulate to make sure that we provide opportunities for people that have been thrown under the bus by the war on drugs. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Kayvon Calabari is running for mayor of Denver. From founding Sexy Pizza to his successful decriminalization initiative in 2005, his entrepreneurialism and his activism have already shaped local culture for the better. Now he wants to take things even farther by running for mayor of Denver. Kayvon wants Denver to take advantage of the growing economic opportunities and to mobilize and empower those who have been trampled by the drug war and the extremes of inequality. If you're in Denver and wondering who to vote for in the next election, or if you just want to hear what a powerful and forward-looking electoral candidate sounds like, you'll enjoy this interview with Kayvon Calabari. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to be here with Kayvon, who is running for mayor in Denver in 2019. Thanks so much for having me. And before we get to all of your activism and work like this, I want to know a little bit more about growing up in Nebraska. Yeah, so I grew up in Northeast Lincoln, Nebraska, which is pretty middle class, white. Um, I was definitely one of the more uh, of color people, I would say, uh, growing up there. Uh, but Lincoln was great. You know, good schools, uh, good environment, very safe. Uh, even though it's uh, Nebraska in general is pretty conservative, Lincoln itself is very liberal. Uh, second or third per capita gay population in the country. Uh, it's got 85,000 people in college out of the 300,000 people that live there. A lot of immigrants, which is why my dad moved there. It's an assimilation point for refugees after wars and genocide. So a lot of Asians, a lot of Middle Easterns, a lot of Africans uh, has set up shop in Nebraska. So actually a lot more ethnic food, I think, available in Lincoln uh, than we have out here in Denver. Um, but, you know, Lincoln was great. My my upbringing was, was interesting. My, my dad um, didn't assimilate, I think, as well as he would have liked and became addicted to gambling. Uh, that put us into bankruptcy twice before I was 10. Uh, led to my parents getting divorced, to us losing our home uh, when I was 10 years old. So after that, my mom, a uh, single mom at that point, uh, worked two to three jobs to keep myself and my younger brother uh, afloat. And uh, I really learned my work ethic from her. I, I started living on my own at, at 16 because she ended up getting married and moving to Montana. And since then, I've really just been hustling and uh, working as hard as I can to, to make a life for myself. I had kind of said to myself that I was going to retire when I was 35 uh, at that point because I never wanted money to be an issue in my family. And uh, little did I know that I would be not retiring, but moving into this p potentially new political career. Um, but I got into cannabis, I think, uh, at a young age, probably around 15 is when I started consuming uh, to really deal with uh, the things that were happening in life. Uh, working full time, going to school full time, dealing with the familial issues uh, was a great way to escape. It wasn't until I got older that I really realized that. I used it medicinally, you know, I used it for my anxiety and for my depression, for uh, my inability to sleep throughout the evening, to, to have an appetite because I work so much. And cannabis has just had such an integral part 
uh, in my life and my upbringing uh, since I started consuming cannabis at 15. It's, it's really been a daily ritual uh, since then. Uh, so meant a whole lot to me. I, it really set the foundation for me understanding that cannabis wasn't as detrimental uh, to people as uh, I think a lot of the scare tactics and dare programs and things like that might suggest. Uh, so when I moved out to Denver and I turned 21 uh, and found a group called Safer, I really wanted to, to advocate for adults at least. I would know, know, don't know if I'd advocate for uh, you know all kids to be using it. Um, I, I think it's appropriate in some cases and inappropriate in others. Um, but cannabis is a malleable plant and has a lot of different uh, impacts on people, uh, depending on where they're at in their life. And, and I've certainly seen that throughout the spectrum of my personal use and also my career working in the space. And so it sounds like you worked really hard uh, at school. You graduated early and then moved out to Denver. And I'm curious what that was like to go from there to here. Uh, it was... You know, it was, it was a little difficult at first. I didn't know anyone out here. Uh, I had worked for an engineering firm back in Nebraska that I got a job with uh, immediately out of college. I was 19 when I started working for that firm. And they wanted to uh, open an office here in Denver and expand that. They saw, I think, you know, what we've all seen in Denver the last decade and wanted to prepare for that and saw the, the building, uh, the construction trades really dramatically increasing uh, here. So... Uh, I moved out right after I turned 21 and didn't know a soul. And it was actually cannabis that got me integrated into the community here. My brother moved after, uh, moved out to Denver after I did, probably about nine months afterwards, and we lived together. And we were both looking for a way to get involved and to meet new people and to, uh, to really uh, integrate into the community here. And we had looked at a lot of the standard nonprofits, Habitat for Humanity, Rescue Mission, and, and none of those really uh, jumped out at us. But my brother got online and had seen this group called SAFER, uh, which was a marijuana policy project initiative. Uh, stand, stood for Safer Alternative for Enjoyable Recreation. And they had just passed initiatives on Colorado and Colorado State campuses that student body vote, largely symbolic, but equalized the penalty of having cannabis on campus with alcohol. Because even though alcohol was obviously obviously more dangerous. It kills one in seven working age Americans. It was, it was driving a lot of the rape culture, the violence, the burning couches after football games, all of that up in Boulder. Cannabis obviously wasn't doing that. Uh, they didn't get why people having cannabis on campus led to losing scholarships and housing and, 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 and leading to some of these very detrimental outcomes for people for choosing to use that safer substance. So we knew that message worked up in, in uh, Boulder and Fort Collins on campuses, and we brought it down here to Denver uh, with Initiative 100. And I worked on that. That was my first real political activism, my first time integrating into the community here, my first time working on cannabis policy reform. And it was to pass uh, for adults uh, the ability to have an ounce or less in your possession and to not be criminalized. And that passed in 2005. What was it like to be working on your first campaign like that? What's the, the nitty gritty details of doing that kind of work? You know, I didn't understand it. I had not been uh, Large, I had not been politically active at all, really, in my life. I don't even think I had voted um, at that time. And it really set in motion for me this idea that if we're going to change laws and make the world a better place, that it's going to happen at the local level. Uh, that's where fires start, right? When you look at the civil rights movement, at LGBTQ rights, when you look at cannabis and the path that those took, they started as small fires at the local level uh, that proved concept, that showed the sky's not going to fall if we, if we take this stand. It gets people to buy into these ideas to have the conversation around these ideas. And then you see other municipalities pick it up. 
And then you see other states pick it up. And all of a sudden, it becomes a federal conversation. And that's exactly what's happening in cannabis right now. So as I look you know, into the future and all these things we have to fix in this country uh, regarding economic disparity and racial issues, I think we really need to put our foot down at the local level um, to find some progress on these. But it was very empowering to understand that uh, a ragtag bunch of, uh, you know, folks who were just really loving uh, cannabis and saw the detriment that it was having on our society at the time, 11,000 people were going to jail every year in Colorado for simple cannabis possession, 800,000 people uh, across this country, creating barriers to housing and employment, uh, child custody, financial aid. Um, We saw that we could change that and have an impact on that conversation locally through this ballot initiative. So very, very empowering to get involved politically uh, at that time and seeing uh, a lot of passion and, and using evidence and facts and 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 having conversations with people about those uh, can really do to change this world for the better and what advice would you have for younger people listening who want to get involved in the political activism yeah jump in uh there are especially under this administration right now with donald trump i you know there's so many folks that are Uh, very upset about him being elected. And, you know, I am too, obviously, to an extent, and he's very dangerous to a lot of certain populations, especially around uh, immigration and and some of the folks that deal with decisions that are made at the federal level. But I'm actually very encouraged by Donald Trump becoming president because he's empowered folks locally. He's, He's reminded them that we could lose our freedoms, that we could lose our quality of life any day if we stop paying attention, if we stop participating in politics. And I've seen the amount of groups Uh, activists, advocate groups, um, people being educated on these issues just increased dramatically uh, over the first couple years of his presidency. And it's really been encouraging to see folks get involved again. Um, So I would say find the issue that you're most passionate about and just start going to some of these meetups, start going to some of the rallies, start going to some of uh, the organizing uh, events that are happening. They're all over the city uh, right now. They're all over the state. And you can find people that feel just as you do on these topics. And once you start making those relationships, Relationships and getting involved, it's amazing how much all of these things intersect. And all, you know, you're, you're, you're concerned about police violence. Now, all of a sudden, you're working on criminal justice and drug policy reform and housing issues and, and bond reform. And, and it just keeps growing because all these issues are intersecting. Um, but all it takes is really getting involved and being a participant. And you never know what it leads to. That's how I've lived my life. I've gotten involved in so many things without having expectations, without knowing where it's going to lead. Um, but once you get involved in these pe- uh, with these people that are so passionate about these topics, it's amazing where it'll take you. And what's really intriguing to me is as you're starting this political activism career, you're also starting to become an entrepreneur at the same time with uh, Sexy Pizza. Yeah, Sexy Pizza is my first business. It's uh, 10 and a half years old now. And I actually started it with uh, one of the gentlemen who started Safer. Uh, here in Denver, and then the first employee of Safer. And they were from Long Island, New York, and always wanted to open a pizzeria. Always wanted to call it Sexy Pizza. Um, I was getting so sick of my engineering job at the time. I was in a gray cubicle, in a gray office with people that I felt were kind of gray inside and and saw my ceiling um, in that firm uh, because I didn't have my professional engineering degree. I just had an associate's degree. Um, Even though I was working harder and and doing a lot more uh, than many in that office, they put this arbitrary limit on me. And I just didn't think that was right. Um, So I walked in one morning and put in my two weeks notice and they told me I could leave immediately. 
And without knowing I was going to be uh, out of a job that day, uh, when I woke up, uh, here I was with that one and ended up exhausting my savings, my 401k, my IRA, I borrowed as much as I could from family and friends, maxed out credit cards to buy a failing pizzeria in Capitol Hill uh, that we had found out about. Never made a pizza, never ran a business, um, but took that plunge and took that risk. And you can't you can't accomplish the things that you want in life. I don't think you can be truly happy unless you're taking risks and you're actually striving for, uh, without failure, what you want to achieve in life. And we ended up buying this place, uh, made all, all our mistakes under their name. Uh, once we felt good about where we were at with the recipes and what we wanted to do in, in, uh, with the interior, we remodeled, we changed the name, we changed the menu. And we opened as, as Sexy Pizza, but uh, a hell of an experience for a first-time entrepreneur that ultimately led to me starting Denver Relief uh, nine months later, which we started with $9,000, or I'm sorry, $4,000 and half a pound of cannabis uh, after Obama was elected. And he said he wasn't going to use federal resources going after state-compliant businesses. So that was my entry into the regulated cannabis industry after being involved in policy for so long. I didn't realize that it was an, only a nine-month gap. So the pizza hadn't had time to really solidify as something that was going to float you, and you're jumping into the next project. Yeah, and that, you know, pizza was never really my aspiration. It wasn't something that I wanted to do long term. It was something that my friends wanted to do, and I wanted to help them get there. Uh, we, we all had complementary skills and, and used that uh, to our benefit in starting this place. But I ultimately wanted to do something bigger, and I wanted to continue that role as an advocate. And I felt that one of the best ways to do that was to start a cannabis business when there were so many folks that were bad actors, bad players, bad examples for this industry involved in it, to make sure that people knew that cannabis is, is a plant for good. And that a lot of the people that were running these businesses that were advocating for patients at the time were really good people, really well-intending people. And we wanted to make sure that that was the narrative that got perpetuated in the media. As Colorado built this industry, uh, really was the inception of the regulated cannabis industry. We always wanted to make sure that people knew that you could start a business, that we could uh, make profit, that we could run a good business, but that we could also be good stewards of our community, of our environment, of empowering the folks that have been harmed by the war on drugs up to that point. Um, so Denver Relief and, and other companies that were like us really bonded on a lot of those issues. And, and I think we're really instrumental in starting a lot of the foundation of the regulated industry, heading in the right direction and making sure that some of those voices that were less than ideal for us um, got drowned out uh, in some of the media coverage that was there in the early years. And something I like about both these projects, Sexy Pizza had a, has a great thing still going on where the money gets returned for certain pizzas to charitable organizations like SSDP and other groups that we believe in. And it sounds like the same thing was going with Denver Relief as well, a, a place to prove the social justice side was possible. How did you start off implementing that? What was the process? Well, we knew that it would be very difficult for us to get traction in our communities and to be accepted as this new business that was still not regulated at the state level, still not regulated at the city level. Um, even before we got community buy-in, we had to get buy-in from landlords, right? And, and these building owners that were very untrusting of this industry. When we applied for our space at One Broadway, which ultimately became our location for Denver Relief, I think there were 20 other people that had applied uh, for that spot. And to set ourselves apart, to differentiate ourselves, we created a full business plan. And, and in, within that business plan was this, uh, this desire to be stewards of our community. And uh, my partner, Ian Sieb at the time, still my partner in Denver Relief Consulting, uh, ended up starting the green team. 
And the green team was just a collaborative effort amongst cannabis businesses, non-cannabis businesses, uh, consumers of cannabis to band together and to do community impact projects. So we started cleaning up trash after the 420 uh, rally at Civic Center Park because it was such a mess afterwards. We felt that that was such a negative perception uh, for the cannabis industry that we decided to take 50 volunteers down there all in our green team shirts and our compostable bags. And, and we picked up all that trash and that grew into urban gardening initiatives with eCar Farms. I think we harvested and donated 18,000 pounds of organic vegetables last year to food banks, uh, food pantries, uh, free bicycle wheelchair repair clinics, college scholarships for underserved youth, um, really just uh, creating community around the cannabis industry. Even if we weren't doing something good for our neighbors, uh, we were bringing folks together in the cannabis industry that just wanted to know that there were folks like them out there that were well-intending, that were, I hate the word, but quote-unquote normal, um, that just wanted to see this industry be not just another one, but a better one, and to rally around that idea and to work together to achieve that. So, but, but the green team was really uh, that effort, which is still alive today, has mobilized thousands of volunteers and hundreds of businesses in this really collaborative spirit to, to want to make the industry be something special. Uh, the business itself must have been doing quite well because it was the longest running in Denver history until a sale to Willie Nelson, correct? That's correct. We sold it in 2016. And uh, from what we can tell, and grant, granted records are a little bit uh, scant uh, early on in the industry, uh, we believe that at the time of the sale, we were the longest continuously operating cannabis business with common ownership uh, in the state of Colorado, which is a testament to all of us working together, which is amazing because the, the two partners that I started that with, I had only known for a few weeks prior uh, to starting Denver Relief. We really took a chance. Um, very different people, different ideas about a lot of things in life, but ultimately after the same goal um, to create a successful business and to integrate into our communities and create a great industry. Um, so it worked out uh, really well, but it was, it was sad to leave it behind, but I think we saw the writing on the wall with us being a small operator. You know, there's so many small operators in Colorado that are really um, burdened right now by this consolidation that's happening in the industry. The prices are hitting the floor. Um, there's so much product out there. There's so many licenses um, that we felt that our efforts, our, our time was best spent uh, in helping others achieve what we did with Denver Relief. <clears throat> so a couple of years prior, we started Denver Relief Consulting, which ended up helping folks start businesses in 13 different states, Puerto Rico, Canada, D.C. Um, we've, we've worked for federal governments across the, the globe uh, on understanding what regulated cannabis means, not just for business owners, but for government and for communities. And we felt that that was a great way to continue our advocacy. So after we sold, we really put the pedal uh, down on, on our advocacy through our consulting work. And it's been a, it's been a great, great thing for us. Working with the zaniness of all these different state laws, which can be somewhat arbitrary, if you were crafting the regulations for the state, a state, what are some of those important lines in the sand that you would draw around the regulation of cannabis? You know, we can't, as, as we're seeing on a lot of East Coast states, have so limited licenses available that people can't participate. Um, I, I would like to see a more open system similar to Colorado. But if we're going to have a free market like this that allows for the consolidation that's happening right here in Colorado, we need to allow for 
smaller entrepreneurs to get in and to be successful in some capacity. I'm a huge fan of collective models in business in general. I'd love to see those ushered in into Colorado. That gives more people the opportunity to participate, to have ownership in the cannabis industry. I think that's really important. Uh, I think we need to, no matter what happens with regard to local state and federal policy reform on this topic, we must maintain the right for adults to grow at their home. Just as people can brew beer um, at their house, um, there, there should be no reason why we should ever get that right taken from us um, at any level of government. And, and I'm going to fight to definitely make sure that that happens. <clears throat> but then lastly, I think we need to be really considerate of the, the war on drugs and that this is the, the start of the fall of that wall and that it is incumbent on us as we regulate to make sure that we provide opportunities for people that have been thrown under the bus by the war on drugs. These communities that have been harmed dramatically um, over the last several decades um, by this war on drugs have been predominantly poor people, predominantly people of color. And those people are not finding opportunities, not just in ownership, um, but in employment because of past criminal records. We need to expunge all of these nonviolent drug offenses that are on people's records uh, when we legalize cannabis. And we need to make sure that the tax money is collected, you know, $250 million plus here in Colorado today, that a good portion of this gets spent reinvesting in these communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs, by giving them back their agency, by finding ways for them to be um, not just uh, having ownership in the cannabis industry, but be able to start small businesses, to go back to school, to, to really reinvest in these people and make sure that we can undo some of this harm that's been placed on them uh, over the years. And uh, I guess so more broadly, I'd love to see the overregulation of the cannabis industry stop. Um, it's amazing that alcohol kills one in seven working age uh, Americans and that it's held to such a lower standard than cannabis with regard to how it's regulated, uh, how it's made available to consumers. We need to make sure that cannabis is is, is uh, held to a standard um, similar, that, that we're not over-regulating because we understand that it's much safer, that it doesn't have the detrimental impact on our communities. And we need to make sure that the access is, is as easy as it is for alcohol to give people that safer choice because they will move in that direction, right? My favorite stat outside of teen use going down since legalization uh, here in Colorado is that alcohol consumption amongst 18 to 35-year-olds is down while their cannabis consumption has gone up. Um, people are choosing when they have that option, uh, the safer choice. And we need to make in that in line with that social use establishments available. And until we can go out as adults and enjoy cannabis in a social environment, similar to alcohol, that we have not realized the intent of amendment 64. We have not realized all the way back to when we decrimmed in 2005, um, what people set out to do, which is put these on a level playing field. And we need to have social use establishments available for adults to participate in cannabis consumption in a safe, secure place, supervised, regulated place, not just for tourists, but for the people that live in Denver, that live in HOA or landlord-controlled apartments that now preclude you from having it in your lease, for folks that live in federally subsidized properties, veterans especially, that can't consume legally in their home, or for people that simply don't want to consume at home around their kids. And we need to give them an outlet to do that in the public space. And so as you run for mayor and hold positions like this, I assume the cannabis thing might be more accepted in this state, but being so against the war on drugs, uh, how much pushback do you receive when you're out in the community talking about these issues? I think people are starting to get it. I think cannabis opened up that conversation for folks and they said, yeah, why are we sending folks to jail for matters of public health, right? If somebody is dealing with addiction, and I'm not talking about necessarily cannabis, but harder drugs, the best bet is not to 
throw them in jail and create these barriers to future opportunities in life. You, you've put shame and stigma. You've applied that to them uh, to the extent that they're never going to find their own opportunities in life again because of these criminal records. Even after you've served your time, these records stay there in perpetuity and preclude you from these fair opportunities ongoing. If, if, we're, if we're talking about addiction to drugs, if we're talking about sex work, if we're talking about homelessness, if we're talking about mental health issues, these are best treated and uh, we can best find resolve on them through services. And all of a sudden, uh, Portugal decriminalizes and, and all drugs are decriminalized in small amounts for possession because they realize it's a public health matter. They start having a conversation about being a public health matter. The dollars spent on services match that conversation. And all of a sudden, drugs go from the number two issue that the citizens have to like not even in the top 20. Um, because they, they're actually dealing with it in a productive manner. Our services are best given to people, provided to people outside of jail. We're going to provide them to them anyways in jail. They're less effective. They're more costly in jail. Uh, to subsidize somebody's housing is one-third the cost than it is to incarcerate them. You know, why are we not providing folks this opportunity uh, to, get, to get better instead of going to jail? People don't use drugs or they're not homeless or they're not dealing with mental health issues or they're not engaged in sex work because they're bad people. They're doing those things to survive or to deal with some sort of trauma in their life. And until we get to the root of those issues and start solving those issues with them collaboratively, um, we're just going to make it worse. And our current uh, war on drugs is, is simply digging arbitrary holes for people uh, that we're throwing folks in. And then we're putting our head down on their foot and really uh, disallowing them from getting out. And we need to change that dynamic. That's a systemic thing uh, that I think we can have a, a big piece of uh, furthering here in Denver and a lot of local municipalities like Berkeley and Oakland and LA that are really pushing in a more progressive direction. To back up a little bit, what was it that made you want to run for mayor? You know, I ran for city council three years ago because I saw that we were not having conversations about the things that Denver was dealing with as far as issues in the city. Uh, we, you know, the number one issue on people's uh, minds right now and, and, and in their lives is housing. You know, more than half the folks living in the city that rent uh, are rent burdened, cost burdened, meaning they, meaning they spend more than a third of their income on housing. More than 25% spend more than 50% of their income on housing. And we're still not seeing a meaningful response to those statistics from our current administration. These, this was an issue back in 2015 when I ran for city council. And it started as a joke run for mayor, and I, I just wanted to initiate those conversations. Uh, but I ended up running for city council because I thought I could have more of a voice. But at the end of the day, nobody viable ran for mayor in 2015. Therefore, this current mayor did not debate. There was no dialogue. Uh, we didn't talk at all about these issues that have now grown exponentially in the last three years. So when I was seeing this next 2019 election come up, I didn't see conversations happening again. I didn't see any viable candidates get ready to stand up and challenge this current administration on these failed policies to try to fix this housing issue. So that was my main, um, I guess, desire to get in was to make sure that we were having dialogue, not just around housing, but around environment. We're the 11th most polluted city in America, in Denver. We're investing all of our in, uh, transportation infrastructure and widening and burying an interstate through the poorest neighborhood in Denver instead of investing in public transportation. Uh, we have, we spent more on 
on uh, deputy overtime in our jails last year than we did on affordable housing. We spent more on an LED sign uh, at the airport last year than we did on affordable housing. And our priorities are backwards. And until we start having conversations and shining light on these issues for Denver residents, I don't think that we're going to be able to change them. And I, I believe that people in my position, folks who I haven't always been privileged. I was homeless 10 years ago for nine months here in Denver. Uh, but now I employ 400 people in, in 13 uh, companies in eight states. I owe it to the city that gave me those opportunities to step out and to use my privilege to benefit these conversations and to benefit the people that don't have voices for themselves, to empower them in this political process. And that's why I stepped in. Little did I know that we'd gain the traction that we have. Right, Our most recent polling shows that 63% of Denverites are ready for a change at the mayor's spot. Uh, I led that polling uh, that we got done two weeks ago, 52 to 44. We're keeping pace with an incumbent mayor in fundraising, and we have about 350 volunteers already registered with the campaign. We started knocking doors a month and a half ago. People are ready for a change. The majority of Denver voters under 40 are unaffiliated. I'm unaffiliated because neither of the parties speak to me. They, they may have some values that resonate with me, but their actions do not. And I think until we have more unaffiliated people of party that are willing to pursue good policy and things that are good for people and for our communities, uh, that we're not going to change that. But I think Denver's headed in that direction. That's what people want to see. So this campaign, uh, those, those, those polling numbers were with likely voters. But this campaign is going to go out to, to reach out to the folks that are less than likely to vote in a municipal election and get them on board, right? Young people, young people creatives, folks in the tech space, folks in the cannabis industry. We need to get these people out to the polls because if we do, we're going to see what's happening across the country, which are a lot of these progressive candidates, these forward-thinking candidates that care more about equity uh, than, than simply profiteering, um, winning elections and actually changing uh, the fabric of our communities and how we operate, how we, how we integrate government into um, society and how people engage government and hold them accountable uh, to an equitable society. The last question before I let you get back to work. If you do get in that mayor's seat, what are the first things that you would want to get done? We have to open up the doors um, and we have to be more transparent. We have to be honest about the problems that we're facing. We as a city, our current administration lies about uh, the severity of some of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, we don't solicit community input. If we do, it's done as an aesthetic. It's not because we actually want to absorb uh, these folks' input. Um, we need to bring community back to the table in the decision-making process. So I think precluding that from happening right now are certain people um, at the top uh, that, that run certain departments, divisions that we need to get rid of uh, because we need to recreate the culture in government. We need to let the people of Denver know that this government's working for them and that we're going to do it collaboratively in solving the issues that Denver's facing. So we have, to, we have some environmental issues, some cultural issues uh, within our city that we need to deal with, and that starts at the top. We need good leadership that puts people in a position to be empowered um, to create these cultures that we want to see that are collaborative, that are based in evidence and science and how we solve problems, um, not based in theory or past um, policy pursuits that um, maybe worked 30 or 40 years ago, uh, but don't today in this quickly changing world. Um, I think we need to have a conversation about how severe these issues are and how we can tackle them together. That's step one. Um, but 
on, on some of the larger issues, I want to start to see how we can charter a public bank here in Denver uh, to save taxpayers $100 million a year in revenue that's now cur currently being shipped out of the state to Wall Street banks because of money mismanagement. Um, I want to see the Office of Economic Development move towards supporting small businesses, collective models, employee-owned models, as opposed to continually deferring all of our incentives and our resources to encouraging big companies to move their headquarters here. Uh, I want to see us support diversion programs in our jails to try to get these folks that are engaging in drug use and sex work and homelessness and mental health to divert them away from prison as quickly as possible and to start those conversations. And I believe that for less money than we spent on deputy overtime last year in our jails, that we can send every single DPS graduate that qualifies for free and reduced lunch to college or to a skilled trade program, an apprenticeship program to feed into this, this glut, this need that we're going to have in the construction trade in Colorado here in the next couple of years. We're going to be 95,000 construction jobs short in the state in 2025. We need to be diverting as many people from jail into those opportunities and give them agency to control their own lives through those jobs, those good paying jobs with benefits, and do the same with those college kids that are, or those high school kids that are graduating that aren't going to college and make sure that, that they can take care of themselves and don't become a financial burden on us as taxpayers in perpetuity. But these are going to be long haul projects, right? But we have to start those conversations on day one and start to be honest uh, about our problems and what we want to do to address them and to do it collaboratively. And that's the spirit we're going to try to create out the gate. Well, thank you so much. It's a grand vision and best of luck in the campaign. Thank you so much for having me. And if folks want to learn more about me, they can go to my website, uh, kayvonfordenver.com. It's K-A-Y-V-A-N-F-O-R. D-E-N-V-E-R.com. We're looking for volunteers uh, in many ways uh, that fit people's lives. And uh, we're obviously looking to continue the fundraising train. Even $5, 10 15 $25 a month recurring donation uh, helps out dramatically. I also hope that if people have questions uh, or they, they have things they want to share with how they think Denver can be better, that they'll reach out. Uh, I'm an accessible candidate. We're an accessible campaign, and we're here to listen. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lex. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>